What an honor. What an honor to be here with you this morning. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to speak with you and to our online family. And we're going to read the scripture in a little bit. So for, for now, you may be seated. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop, for that beautiful introduction. I would just like to say that I give honor to God for his great love, to God the Son for his great sacrifice, and God the Holy Spirit for his teaching ministry in my life. I stand before you as a picture of what grace looks like. <laughs> To Bishop Blake, who is a man of integrity, whom I am proud to call my pastor, and to Lady May, thank you for extending this invitation for me to speak. Your visionary leadership is a model for believers around the world. Especially your work and your care for orphans in Africa and in the United States. And Lady May, your wisdom, grace, intelligence, support, encouragement, just you are a blessing to women in ministry. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to also acknowledge Assistant Pastor Charles Blake II and Lady Deandra Blake and young adult Pastor Lawrence Blake and Lady Janine along with the elders many of my friends here and the mothers of the church and i would also like to acknowledge my husband elder irving tolbert who is here would you stand please there is my covering <laughs> and they've also been acknowledged but i would just like to thank my daughter who philosopher Lynege garrison and her family yes stand again this is my daughter Lynege garrison and her husband, Matt Garrison, and my three grandsons, Josiah, Judah, and Jeremiah. You can tell they have a little Christianese in there, huh? And my dear friends for joining me, Linda, Odette, and Tuesday. Thank you so much. Would you stand again? Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, are you ready? Let's pray. Father for your word today, we bless you. You know our hearts, you know our needs. You are the great physician. We need you now this morning, Lord, to breathe life into this word. And we bless you that the hearts of your people will be met, their needs will be met. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, Bishop Blake urged us to study God's word. I'm just going to take a minute and see if I can get my computer to cooperate. That praise song, oh, it says no internet. Okay, we bless the Lord anyhow. Okay. The praise song from Psalm 34 was 
amazing. Wasn't that amazing? Well, last Sunday, Bishop Blake urged us to study God's word because he said it's soul food. But have you ever read the Bible only to be filled with questions and then more questions? This was my experience as I listened to the Psalms. As a visual learner, I enjoy reading the Bible, but lately I've been captivated by listening to scripture. The Bible takes on an added dimension when God's word is read aloud. And so, although I'm a student of the New King James Version, that's my preferred version or translation, I was listening to the book of Psalms being read by Max McLean, who is the artistic director of the Fellowship of Performing Arts. And as he read the Psalms in the NIV, I heard something a little different. When he got the Psalm 86, 11, this is what it says. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O oh God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. When I heard verse 16, I heard something I had never heard before. King David is pleading for God's help, and he says, help me, Lord, because I serve you just as my mother did. Hmm. David is telling God that, his mother is the one who has given him his spiritual heritage. This was the first time that I heard King David mention his mother. I kept listening, and 30 chapters later, in Psalm 116, verse 16, again, King David says, Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. Hmm. The king is grateful for God's help as he walks in the freedom of serving God, just as his mother did. How instructive that David's mother deposited in her son the legacy of serving the Lord. I meditated on verse 16, and then the question, who is King David's mother? Kept leaping into my consciousness. 
I flipped through my memory files of the Old Testament women, Eve, Sarah, Miriam, Keturah, Tamar, Rachel, Rahab, Esther, Ruth, Deborah, Shunammite woman, Bathsheba. No, the name of David's mother didn't surface. Who is King David's mother? One of the most educational tools we have as students of the word is to ask questions of the biblical text. To ask is better than to assume that we know the answer, and it's better than ignoring the question altogether. So I asked, but I was frustrated that the answer didn't surface immediately. Why can't I remember? So Dr. Owens, I did what any 21st century Bible scholar would do. I googled, who is King David's mother? The answer led me on an amazing journey. First, let's talk about who King David is and why we love King David. We'll cover some major episodes in David's life from teenage years through kingship not necessarily in chronological order, though it's close. And then we're going to double back to talk about David's childhood. Since a picture is worth a thousand words, please enjoy on the large screens these beautiful works of art from UMI's collection, Urban Ministry Incorporated. Well, can you see the first slide of King David the Shepherd Boy? There we are. We love King David because he was a poet who wrote 73 psalms or songs. And these songs let us know that real feelings can be expressed to God. He was the shepherd boy who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need, I shall not want. And that teaches us that God is our provider, our protector, our rewarder and that goodness and mercy follow us wherever we go. Do you ever wonder who taught David to write songs and sing praises to the Lord? We love King David because as a teenager, David was fearless in his fight with the giant Goliath. And Goliath was the champion of Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26. Goliath made fun of David when he saw him, but David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David took his slingshot and hurled one smooth stone that hit the giant in his forehead, and Goliath fell dead to the ground and then David jumped on him and took Goliath's sword and chopped off his head. I wonder, you know the Bible is real because these stories, I mean these accounts, they say accounts, a story is something that we read that may or may not be real, but these Bible accounts are real. And you know the Bible has to be real because who can make this up? <laughs> but I wonder who taught 
David to be so fearless to defend the name of the living God. We love King David because he was a musician. David played music to ease the troubled mind of Israel's first king, King Saul. Saul disobeyed God. And to make matters worse, he dabbled in the occult. Saul suffered from terrible fits, and David played music to help calm the king. Who taught David to play an instrument? We love King David because he was a true friend to Jonathan, and we read that in 1 Samuel chapter 20. As I said earlier, Saul was the first king of Israel, and Saul's son Jonathan was next in line to the throne. But Jonathan knew that God had selected David to be king, so Jonathan relinquished his right to the throne and he helped protect David when his father, Saul, was out to kill him. Who taught David about loyalty and that friendship was precious? We love King David because of his care of those who are rejected. During the Bible, when Jonathan was killed, the nurse, I'm sorry, during the battle, there was a battle with the Philistines and the Israelites, and Jonathan and Saul were both killed in that battle. Meanwhile, at home, the nurse was taking care of Jonathan's child, who was five years old, and his name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is always a tongue twister. <laughs> he was five years old, and the nurse was running to safety with, with Jonathan's five-year-old son, and she dropped him. And Mephibosheth was crippled for life. And he thought himself worthless. He felt like a dead dog. Those are the terms he uses in scripture to de define himself. But Jonathan, but Jonathan and David had made an agreement, a covenant. And David said, I will take care of your family. And when David ascended to the throne, he did not forget this covenant. He found Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, and welcomed him into his own family and insisted that this man, he was a man by now, sit and eat at the king's table. How did David learn to accept those who've been rejected? And who taught David the importance of loyalty, empathy, and compassion? Well, we love King David because he was a worshiper. When David became king after Saul, King David united Judah and Israel when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And you remember what the Ark of the Covenant is? It, it was a box that was laden with gold. And inside the box were the tablets of the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so the Israelites carried the Ten Commandments and some other items in the Ark of the Covenant, and for them it represented the presence of God. Well, they were in a battle with their enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, and 
After a while, King David brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He was so overjoyed. He was so excited that the presence of God was back with God's people that he danced right out of his priestly clothes as he led the celebration into Jerusalem. Who taught David to dance and praise the Lord? Most of us remember King David because of his sin with Bathsheba. David took another man's wife and had her husband, Uriah, killed. But David knew how to repent. When the prophet Nathan confronted David, David repented before the Lord. And in Psalm 51, we can read his beautiful, beautiful poem, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God forgave the sin, but David and Bathsheba suffered great consequences. But I wonder, who taught David how to repent? How did he know that God is a forgiving God? Now that we've reviewed these major episodes in David's life, hold on to your seats, because we're going to look at the woman who influenced him. Nothing exists in scripture about David before the prophet Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. In other words, the first time we meet David, he's a teenager in the fields in Bethlehem. And Samuel the prophet is coming to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. Why is he coming to anoint a new king? Well, God says, I have rejected Saul. Saul disobeyed me. And Samuel the prophet, who had anointed Saul in the first place, he was so despondent. God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16:1, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem. When he gets there, Jesse welcomes him into his home, and Jesse's seven sons are there. Samuel does the obvious. He anoints Eliab, who is the oldest boy. He's tall, he's handsome, and Samuel says, surely this is the next king of Israel. And God says, uh-uh-uh, not so fast, not so fast. He says, mm-mm. -mm. Don't look on the outer. <laughs> he said, man does that. But I look on the inner. I look at the heart. Eliab is not the next king. Samuel was confused. So he said, okay, well, maybe it's the youngest, the next youngest, and the next youngest, and the next thing. All the way down to the seven boys, none of them were God's chosen. And then Samuel says to Jesse, are these all the sons you have? This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in the New International Version, this is how it's written. Are these all the sons you have? But in the New King James Version, it says, are these all the young lads? Are they all here? 
And as if to say, oh, by the way, Jesse says, oh, yeah, oh, by the way, there's the youngest out there in the fields taking care of the sheep. David is summoned. He consecrates himself. He comes to the celebration. The prophet Samuel anoints David as king in front of his brothers whom God has rejected. David is God's choice. The young shepherd boy is God's future king of Israel. This is such a beautiful account, which most of us have read and studied many times. But have we paused long enough to ask the obvious question? Why was David in the fields and not with his brothers and father when Samuel came to Bethlehem? Why wasn't this youngest son of Jesse's invited to the feast? Well, according to Jewish narrative, Jesse, or Yeshai, is a farmer, a leader, and head of the Sanhedrin, and this is the Supreme Court of Israel. And much of this information I'm going to share with you now is from Jewish writer Chena, Chena Weisberg, and she wrote a book about women in Israel tending the garden. Chena Weisberg is a beautiful writer, and she gives us historical information that is not necessarily in scripture, but what I did with her information was I matched it with scripture, and it was just amazing how the account around David's childhood filled in. As I studied the Jewish narrative, I remembered what Dr. Dennis Edwards instructs his students. He says, although the Bible is written for us, it's not written to us. Those who were reading the Bible at the time it was written, and the Jews called their text the Bible, and at the time that it was written, they knew the backstories of the people in the text. So the author didn't necessarily go into a lot of detail about each individual because it was common knowledge. And it's like um, if uh, 30 years from now, People say, well, you know, I went to a Zoom meeting. And 30 years from now, someone might have to say, a Zoom meeting? What's Zoom? But they, we don't have to ask that question now because we're all familiar with how to have meetings and the digital age has come alive, since we've, especially since we've been on the pandemic. And so you see, we don't have to go into detail about that good example, I hope, of why the authors don't go in such detail in the scriptures. Well, Jesse has what amounts to a midlife crisis. Jewish law prohibits Israel, prohibits Israelites from marrying Moabites. Now, when the Israel left the slavery in Egypt, they were on their way to the promised land, the Moabites refused to let them cross through. And because this was such a cruel thing to stop them from crossing through, 
the Jews had a rule, no one is to marry a Moabite. So Jesse's conflicted with this because his grandmother is Ruth. So I know this is a little Bible history, but think with me now. You remember Ruth and Boaz? And Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse. Now, because Ruth was Moab, a Moabite, Jesse is thinking, I might be illegitimate because my grandmother was a Moabite. And what he doesn't understand is that, at the time what he didn't understand was that the, the Jewish rule, the law, didn't say you can't marry a Moabite. It was for Jewish women not to marry a Moabite male. So it prohibited them from marrying the men because the men were the ones keeping Israel from crossing through their land. But Jesse's confused. He separates from his wife. He says, I'm, I shouldn't be married to a Jewish woman. I don't deserve it. I can't do this. And his wife, Nitzavet, is devastated. Her marriage, her seven sons, her relationship with her husband, all of a sudden Jesse is thinking, I can't be in this relationship anymore. I'm not worthy. But he decides after a while that he really does want to have a family and what he considers a legitimate child. So he talks to Nitzavet's maid servant. And he decides, she's a Gentile. If I'm really a Gentile because I have Moabite heritage, I can marry another Gentile, and our child will be legitimate. Well, Nitzavet's maidservant is still so loyal to Nitzavet. She goes to Nitzavet, and she says, this is what Jesse is planning. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? And then they decide, let's do what Leah and Rachel did. Remember Leah and Rachel and Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob was in love with Rachel. And, and uh, Jacob's plan was to work seven years. He had to work seven years in order to marry Rachel, and he did. Unfortunately, when he woke up on the wedding morning, he looked over and he said, it's Leah. He married Leah instead of Rachel. And he had to work another seven years to get Rachel. So, Nitzavet and her maidservant decide this is what they're going to do. When it's obvious that Nitzavet is with child, Jesse has no idea that it's his son. And Nitzavet's other sons have no idea that it's their brother. And the sons are so outraged. They are determined to kill her and her baby, but Jesse convinces them not to harm their mother or the child. Instead, they reject the child and treat him with such contempt that everyone, all of Bethlehem, thinks that he is, he is worthless, that he is illegitimate, and he is just discarded. Jewish narrative paints a picture of a solitary David who was not welcome to sit at the family table. David was forced to eat at a table alone by himself in the corner. So despised was David that he was sent to work alone in the fields with the sheep. And during this time, Nitzavet never told Jesse what happened because she didn't want to embarrass him. She never told him. He didn't know. 
So David is sent to work in, alone in the sheep because his brothers hoped that a lion or a bear would kill him. But David learned how to protect the sheep, and David was the one who killed the lion and the bear. Everything changes when David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Jewish narrative says that the oil bubbled out of the jar like it couldn't wait to anoint David as king. I'm going to read a, just a short part of my book so we can get a bigger picture and just imagine this scene. When Samuel is calling David from the fields to the house to be anointed, Nitzavet is curious about the gathering and even more curious that David had been invited, so she followed David. She hid at the doorway, close enough to be seen, but not too close. Close enough not to be seen, but close enough to hear. From where she stood, Nitzavet could see God's providential selection of young David as Israel's future king. Years of silent pain erupted into a cry of praise because now she and David were vindicated. Finally, she could tell her husband what really happened that night years ago. Her secret would no longer embarrass him and her shame was erased. God had vindicated her just as he had her ancestors and she praised God saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, referring to David. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, Psalm 118, verse 22. At age 15, David is anointed king in the presence of his brothers, and they are so shocked because they, were, they thought that he was garbage. And the brothers exclaim, the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our sight. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Psalm 118, 22 and 24. At the anointing, Jesse and his brothers embrace the child and they shout, long live the king. But of course, it would take 15 long years for David to ascend the throne. Well, David's mother, Nitzavet, does surface in scripture several chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, when David is running from Saul, who's trying to kill him, and he takes his parents to, of all places, Moab, and he asks the king in Moab, he says, please, take care of my mother and my father. I think he says father and mother, but you get the idea. He takes them there. And that's the first time David mentions, or the scripture mentions, David's mother, other than David referring to her in the Psalms. Well, now David is counted as the eighth son of Jesse, and David's mother surfaces, as I mentioned, in scripture again, though not by name. Throughout her years of rejection, Nitzavet provided a safe haven for David and modeled how to remain faithful to the Lord. According to David, it was his mother who taught him how to serve the Lord. 
Perhaps King David provides an answer for men and women, boys and girls, wives and mothers, husbands, sons and daughters who may have been rejected. An answer that was modeled by Nitzavit. David knew how to praise, as we read in Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. David knows how to praise. And David also knew how to lament. And lament is to cry out to God, to, to express real feelings to God. Lament is not always pretty, but it's honest. And in, in lament, there's a relationship developed between the individual and God because the honesty says, God, I know you're real, I know you're there, but look, this is me and this is what's going on with me right now, right here, I hurt, show up, help us sister out. David knew how to lament. In Psalm 69, verse 8, David cries, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. So do you see how scripture really complements the Jewish narrative of David's mother? Nitzavet taught this boy who would become king to praise the Lord in song and to be fearless in the face of giants. She taught David to love the Lord so much that he danced before the Lord with all his might. And perhaps it was she who taught David to run instead of, instead of running away from God when he sinned, run to God when he sinned. Many of us think that, oh, God is angry at me, God is mad at me, and we stay away from God, but God is welcoming us, and all we need to do is repent. Did Nitzavet teach David how to lament? We do know that she taught him how to be a servant of the Most High God. The parallels between David, the rejected son, and Jesus, the rejected Son of God, are numerous, which tells us that Jesus knows how we feel. We have a great high priest who experienced what we are experiencing. What we are experiencing. Remember that during his three years of ministry, Jesus' family thought he was insane? In Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Jesus' family wanted to come and take him home because they said he's out of his mind. So his family life had to have been a little chaotic at best and dysfunctional at the least. <laughs> so whether we're young or old, abandoned, rejected, neglected, or abused, Jesus, the son of David, which is one of his priestly titles, he's able to relate to our emotional and psychological pain. Today, according to Romans 8, 
34, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for us, making intercession for us. And Jesus knows how we feel, whether we say it aloud or not. So why not do what David did and express our feelings to God? As David relied on, depended on, believed in, and trusted in God, no matter the circumstances of his birth, and despite the chaos in his life, so too should we. David cried to the Lord, and we should too. And I would like to share with you a technique called the carry technique. The carry technique is developed by my dear friend and prayer partner, Dr. Minnie Claiborne, who went to heaven this past July. And the carry technique is a way of expressing to God how we feel. Now, these last year and a half, two years, have been so stressful for the world and for the body of Christ. We've had many losses. At UMI, we lost our beloved founder, Dr. Melvin Banks. What a great shock for us. And many of you have lost family and friends, and, and there has been so much change, and we have so much inside, and, and it's kind of very disorienting. It's like, God, what's going on? Well, the carry technique is a way that we can cry out to God, tell him our feelings, like David did, tell him what's going on, tell him our grief and our pain, and ask God to answer our prayers. So here's how it goes. It's written in Dr. Minnie's book, Prayer Therapy, Stop Hurting. She teaches us to see, cry out to God, and it goes like this. Father, I feel angry. I'm hurt. I have pain because, and then you fill in the blank. And then A, ask God to help you. Lord, will you help me with, and then fill in the blank. And then R, release the problem to God. I release my anger. I release my hurt. I release my pain to you because of, and then you fill in the blank. And then receive help from God. Lord, I receive your help. I receive your peace. I receive your healing because of, fill in the blank. And then yield to God in thanksgiving. God, I thank you that you hear my prayer. I praise you. You are the almighty God. I know that you are there. I know you are listening. I know you're here. Thank you. That's yield to God in thanksgiving. Jesus Christ is the best friend ever. And if you've never asked him to be your savior, you're missing the most important relationship you can ever have. Before I give the invitation, I, I want us to just sing a little bit of the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, because
When you sing this song, it'll help you remember the carry technique, because the words are, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. ever because life is going to happen and you're going to need a savior you're going to need someone that you can tell it to someone to heal your pain someone who knows how you feel we talk about salvation and being with the lord in heaven but i need jesus now i need jesus today in order to make it through tomorrow. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, Jesus died for those who are rejected, abandoned, those who are discarded or who think they are. Jesus wants to know you are accepted in the beloved. He loves you. He died to save you. Won't you come? As, as they're coming, I want to close with this story about Johnny Lingo and the Eight Cow Wife by Patricia McGear. And it shows us how precious we are to God. There was a merchant who went to a Pacific island and he was going there because he wanted to buy pearls. And he had heard that there was a man named Johnny Lingo who, had the, who was the best person to help him pick out the pearls he wanted. So when he got to Kiniwata, everyone told him, yes, Johnny Lingo is the person, but he lives on Nurabandi. You're going to have to go see him. And the one thing this per merchant noticed is that every time they mentioned Johnny Lingo's name, they started laughing. And he's like, why are you laughing? They said, well, Johnny got beat by old Sam Carew. Um, Sam's daughter, Sarita, mm, she wasn't the cutest little thing, but instead of paying three cows for her, Johnny paid eight cows 
for Sarita. So this merchant goes to Nirabandi and he meets Johnny Lingo and he's sitting at the table and Johnny Lingo says, oh, are they talking about me at Keniwata? He says, yes, yes, they are. What are they saying? He said, well, you know, they're saying that you paid three cows for a Sarita and that she was a little plain and a little homely and scared of her own shadow, but you bought her for eight cows. All of a sudden, this woman walks into the room elegant, graceful, self-assured. She puts flowers on the table. She serves tea. And when she leaves, she looks at her husband with the most beautiful glance. And the merchant says to Johnny Lingo, he says, that was Sarita? And Johnny Lingo says, there's only one Sarita. And he says, but, but, but. And Johnny Lingo says, how do you think she would have felt going down to the river, washing her clothes with the other women, and their husbands paid four and five cows for them, and I only paid three cows. How do you think she would have felt? He said, I didn't want an eight-cow wife. I didn't want a three-cow wife. I wanted an eight-cow wife. And so I wanted the best for her. I wanted to, her to know she was valued. I wanted her to know she was precious more than any other woman in the village. And that's what the church is to God the Father. He gave his best for us. Not three cows, not eight cows, not 10 cows. The blood of Jesus on Calvary to pay for our sins and unite us with God the Father. And so if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, we invite you now to come.